0: Chapter 5, Part 1 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Embarkation and Assault On 30 August, ComNav issued his Operation Plan 108-50, assigning to JTF-7, of which 10 Corps was a part, the mission of seizing by amphibious assault a beachhead at Inchon. 10 Corps Operation Order No. 1 was dated on the 28th, though not received by division until the 30th. By that time, division planning had made so much progress that Embarkation Order 1-50 was issued on the last day of the month, followed on 4 September by the final draft of Division Operation Order 2-50. Operations orders of JTF-7 and TF-90 were issued concurrently. This meant that the assault RCTs, contrary to amphibious doctrine, were to receive rigid landing plans drawn up completely by the division. Lack of time caused this variation from usual procedure, but General Smith had confidence in the ability of his troops to overcome the handicap. Under the circumstances, he asserted, Adoption of such methods was justified by the common background and training of all elements and individuals in an amphibious doctrine, procedures, tactics, and techniques. The most that could be done was to summon brigade staff officers from Korea for a conference. Colonel Edward D. Snedeker, chief of staff; Captain Eugene R. Herring, Jr., U.S. Navy, brigade surgeon; Lieutenant Colonel Arthur A. Chidester, G. Four and Major Donald W. Sherman, G-1, arrived on board the Mount McKinley for a conference on 28 August and the following day. The Brigade G-3, Lieutenant Colonel Joseph L. Stewart, reported as liaison officer on the 31st. When he returned to the front, the 5th Marines was attacking, and he discussed landing schedules with Lieutenant Colonel Raymond L. Murray while the regimental commander directed the action. This, remarked General Smith, was hardly in accordance with accepted procedure for planning amphibious operations. The recommendation of brigade staff officers that the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, be designated for the assault on Womido was accepted by division planners. Colonel Snedeker also proposed that the 1st Korean Marine Corps, KMC, regiment of nearly 3,000 men be substituted for the 17th Rock Regiment, which he said was committed in the Pusan perimeter and might not be available. The change was approved by GHQ on 3 September, with the 8th Army being directed to provide weapons for the newcomers. This was the beginning of a relationship that would find the KMC serving with distinction alongside the men of the 1st Marine Division and eventually becoming a 4th Infantry Regiment of the Division. Activated in 1949 by the Republic of Korea, the unit took part in anti-guerrilla operations until the NKPA invasion. After the outbreak of hostilities, the KMC's fought creditably in UN delaying actions in southwest Korea. The turning point came when they were attached to the 1st Marine Division and sent to Pusan for test firing of their new weapons before embarking for Incheon. Immediately, the Koreans commenced to model themselves after U.S. Marines so assiduously as to win respect for their spirit and rugged fighting qualities. They were quick to learn, despite the language handicap, and showed aptitude in mechanical respects. Landing of 1st Marine Division The main body of the 1st Marine Division troops landed at Kobe from 29 August to 3 September. Marine officers sent in advance to that seaport had found the authorities there very cooperative and brought back to Tokyo a building plan which General Smith approved. Since the facilities in and about Kobe were limited, two large APs were designated as barrack ships, thus making available a marine labor pool at the docks. At best, every hour was needed for the tremendous task of transferring cargo from merchant-type shipping into assault shipping. There was cause for anxiety, therefore, when a telephone message informed the command of the 1st Marine Division on 3 September that Typhoon Jane had struck Kobe with winds of 74 miles per hour. First reports had it that the Marine Phoenix was on the bottom with all of the division's signal gear. Several ships were said to have broken their moorings and gone adrift, the docks were reported under 4 feet of water, and loose cargo on the piers had been inundated by breakers. Later accounts proved to be less alarming. The Marine Phoenix, having merely developed a bad list as a result of shifting cargo, was soon righted. Nor was the other damage as serious as had had first been reported. But 24 hours were lost from the tight reloading schedule while Typhoon Jane kicked up her heels, and time was one commodity that could not be replaced. All operations at Kobe had to be speeded up to pay for this delay. On 4 September, the Mount McKinley set sail for Kobe, arriving at 1445 the next day to be welcomed by an army band at the pier. The soothing powers of music were needed by marine officers who learned that fire had broken out in the hold of the noonday as she belatedly approached Kobe. This Jonah had taken so long to load at San Diego that she lagged behind the others, and now large quantities of much-needed marine clothing were apparently ruined by water, when the fire was extinguished. Once again, the Army came to the rescue with wholehearted cooperation by taking the water-soaked boxes to a reclamation depot where the garments were dried, repackaged, and sent back to the docks in time for loading out on the originally scheduled ships. Only the most basic troop training could be conducted at Kobe to supplement the individual and amphibious instruction the men had received on shipboard. At this time, moreover, an order from the Secretary of the Navy made it necessary to reduce the size of the landing force by withdrawing about 500 Marines who had not yet reached their 18th birthday. They were transferred to the 1st Armored Amphibian Tractor Battalion, which was to be left behind at Kobe when the division embarked for Incheon. This unit had been organized at Camp Pendleton in accordance with a directive from the Commandant. It was found necessary, however, to transfer most of its combat-ready men to the 1st Tank Battalion in order to bring that outfit up to full strength. The Tank Battalion was given priority because its vehicles would be used throughout the operation, while the armored amphibians might be employed only occasionally. As a consequence, the 1st Armored Amphibian Tractor Battalion left San Diego with new personnel lacking in the skills to make it fully combat-ready. Lieutenant Colonel Francis H. Cooper, the commanding officer, recommended at Kobe that the unit be withheld from action until drivers, gunners, and maintenance crews could be properly trained. General Smith and his staff concurred, having learned that a trained Army unit, Company A of the 56th Amphibian Tractor Battalion, could be made available. Orders were given for Cooper's battalion to remain at Kobe, therefore, with the 17-year-old Marines attached. Several other U.S. Army units were to take part along with the Marines. The 96th Field Artillery Battalion, the 2nd Engineer Special Brigade, the 73rd Engineer C Battalion, the 73rd Tank Battalion, the 50th Engineer Port Construction Company, and the 65th Ordnance and Ammunition Company. These units comprised a total of about 2,750 troops. Plans called for the commanding officer of the 2nd Engineer Special Brigade to head a logistical task organization which also included several Marine units, the 1st Shore Party Battalion, the 1st Combat Service Group, and the 7th Motor Transport Battalion. The Shore Party troops were to initiate unloading at the objective, whereupon the overall control would pass to the 2nd Engineer Special Brigade, on order, to ensure continuity of development of unloading facilities. Division service units, in accordance with current directives, were to carry the 30-day replenishment of spare parts appropriate to the unit concerned. Although the combat service group had neither spare parts nor supplies, it was to have custody of both after the landing. Thus, the units would be freed immediately to move away from the beach in support of the division as it drove toward Kimpo and Seoul. At Kobe, the men of the 1st Marine Division were required to leave the full clothing bags they had brought from San Diego at Embark for Inchon with field transport packs containing only the most essential items. This meant that some 25,000 sea bags must be stored at the Japanese port in such a way that future casualties and rotation drafts could reclaim their personal effects without delay. As a reminder of the grim task ahead, provisions must be also made to return to proper custody the effects of deceased personnel. Plan to seize Kimpo Airfield Intelligence reports on the eve of embarkation did not depart from earlier estimates of a maximum of 2,500 NKPA troops in the objective area. From 4 to 500 were believed to be garrisoning Walmido; 500 defending Kimpo, and the balance stationed in and about Incheon. Despite the estimates of low to moderate enemy resistance, however, General Smith differed with the command of Ten Corps when a commando-type raid on Kimpo was proposed. The question came up on 8 September at a conference held at Kobe on the Mount McKinley and attended by Generals Hickey and Smith, Admiral Doyle, and Colonel Louis B. Eli, U.S. Army. Eli commanded the newly formed Ten Corps Special Operations Company composed of 124 U.S. Army troops briefly trained by TTU instructors in demolitions, individual combat, and ship-to-shore movements in rubber boats. General Almond's plan called for this company, reinforced by Marines, to embark at Kobe on 10 September in a British frigate and transfer to a South Korean picket boat. Upon arrival at the objective area on D-Day, the raiders were to paddle three miles in rubber boats to the north of the attack force, land under cover of darkness, and move inland for a surprise attack on Kimpo at dawn. General Alman felt it necessary to seize the airfield at the earliest possible moment. Surprise, he felt, would reduce the risks. General Smith pointed out, however, that Colonel Eli's men would have to row their rubber boats against a strong tide and cross a wide expanse of mudflats on foot. His radios could only reach four miles, and his presence in the 1st Marine Division's zone of action would restrict the use of naval gunfire and air support. Finally, said the Marine General, it was not certain that the Raiders could hold the airfield even if they took it. This conference did not settle the issue. Colonel Williams, the Division Chief of Staff, was requested in a telephone call followed by a dispatch from G-1 section of GHQ to turn over 100 specially qualified Marines to Eli's company. Smith sent a dispatch requesting reconsideration. He cited the battle casualties of the brigade, which had not been replaced, and the 500 underage Marines to be left behind at Kobe. As a final objection, many of his best-qualified men had already embarked on the LSTs. General Shepard sent a dispatch supporting the 1st Marine Division commander, and the order from GHQ was recalled. Another proposal by General Allman to speed up the drive inland from the beachhead was relayed to General Smith aboard the Mount McKinley on 9 September by Brigadier General Henry I. Hodes, ADC of the 7th Infantry Division. This was a plan to land a battalion of the 32nd Infantry on Green Beach, Walmido, with a mission of racing across the causeway on the late afternoon of D-Day and moving rapidly down the road to seize the high ground south of Seoul, more than 20 miles inland. The 1st Marine Division was requested to furnish five tanks in support of the Enterprise tentatively scheduled to take place while two battalions of Marine artillery were landing on Walmido and two Marine rifle regiments were landing on the Incheon beaches. The idea struck Smith as being extremely optimistic. Without going into the tactical objections, he decided that the scheme was logistically impracticable. Shipping assigned to Marines The embarkation at Kobe was not completed without some confusion. Much of the equipment was in its original containers and had never been checked or identified. Large quantities of class 1, 3, and 5 supplies distributed throughout the incoming shipping had to be reassembled and reassigned for the outloading. In the lack of suitable storage areas near the piers, classes 3 and 5 were offloaded into Japanese barges and held in floating storage until they could be reloaded onto assault shipping. Inter-peer transfer of cargo was avoided whenever possible by berthing incoming shipping so that units could load directly into assault shipping. Unfortunately, this could not be done in some instances, since the LST landing was outside but adjacent to the pier area. Facilities for the embarkation of the brigade at Pusan were satisfactory, with pier space for three APAs and one AKA at one pier and an LSD at another. All of the assigned LSTs could beach simultaneously along the seawall. Only marine amphibious experience enabled the division to complete its tremendous task at Kobe in spite of the time lost as a result of Typhoon Jane. The shipping tentatively assigned by Corps consisted of 1 AGC, 6 APAs, 8 AKAs, 3 LSDs, 1 LSM, 3 APDs, 12 LSUs, and 47 LSTs. This last figure included 17 Navy-manned and 30 scat Japanese-manned, LSTs. The troop list of approximately 29,000 men was broken down by the division into the following six embarkation groups with their assigned shipping. Abel, Baker, Charlie, Dog, Easy, Fox. Four of these groups were to embark from Kobe while Charlie mounted out from Pusan and Fox from Yokohama, Yokosuka, and Camp McGill in Japan. The main body of the division's 3rd Rifle Regiment, the 7th Marines, was scheduled to land in Japan on 17 September. Colonel Litzenberg, the commanding officer, arrived at Itami Airfield on the 6th, having flown from Camp Pendleton ahead of his troops to make arrangements. Movement to the Objective Area The movement of JTF-7 to the Objective Area was planned in the most exacting detail, owing to the dispersion of the ships to begin with, the need for secrecy, and the limited time. Another complication entered the picture at the last minute, when a second typhoon loomed on the Pacific horizon with considerably more menace than its exotic name would imply. Navy meteorologists have been plotting the movement of Typhoon Kezia since the first signs of turbulence near the Marianas Islands on 6 September. Generating winds of 100 miles per hour three days later, the typhoon was churning a steady course toward the East China Sea and Tsushima Strait, where it was expected to hit on 12 or 13 September. The timing could not have been worse as far as Admiral Doyle and General Smith were concerned. Kezia threatened to strike the ships of the task force during the last stages of embarkation and the first phase of the approach to Inchon. And any serious disruption of the Navy's delicate timetable would place the 15 September deadline hopelessly beyond reach. With the carriers, cruisers, and destroyers scheduled to be in the Yellow Sea, beyond the path of the storm, Admiral Doyle's amphibious vessels were the most imperiled elements. The attack force commander planned to move his ships to the objective area in six increments, three of them loading in Japan, one in Pusan, and two at both places simultaneously. Because of the last two, certain rendezvous areas were designated so that fragments of a group could converge at sea to form the whole. Obviously, then, the mathematics of navigation was a dominant factor. Success hinged on coordination in terms of hours, not weeks or days. Each of the six increments had its own time schedule for an independent voyage. The route to Incheon was marked off on maps by a chain of checkpoints, the most significant of which bore the code names Arkansas, Iowa, and California. The first two lying in the East China Sea off the southwestern tip of Korea formed the junction of the sea lanes from Japan and Pusan. Consequently, there was no alternative to their remaining fixed in the direct path of the oncoming typhoon. Point California was important in that it marked the end of the open sea phase and the beginning of the treacherous offshore approach to Incheon via flying fish and east channels. The departure schedule for the attack force was set out in Doyle's Operation Order 14-50. The basic pattern would evolve only after considerable shuffling and secondary routing. For instance, two vessels of the Cumbersome Pontoon Movement Group, carrying vital equipment for the expansion of Inchon's port facilities, would not leave Sasebo until 11 September. They were to join the slow Yokohama convoy near Point Iowa the same day. Tractor elements A and B, the latter trailing at a distance of 6 miles, would pick up the Pusan LSTs at Iowa on 13 September. The Kobe contingent of the transport movement group was to pass through to Point, Arkansas on the 14th, joining the Cavalier, Pickaway, Henrico, and Seminole from Pusan. All ship movements took place on schedule until the morning of 11 September, when angry ocean swells off the coast of Japan marked the approach of Kezia. Winds at the center of the typhoon were estimated at 125 miles per hour, but Admiral Doyle based his decisions on the assumption that the storm would curve off to the north instead of colliding with the invasion armada in full force. He was taking a calculated risk, therefore, when he ordered the transport movement group at Kobe to weigh anchor on the 11th, a day ahead of schedule, and proceed to the objective area. The LSTs, already on their way, were now out of danger, and Doyle believed that advancing the sailing date would enable the AKAs and APAs to escape the worst of the typhoon. The Mount McKinley, with Doyle, Smith, and their staffs aboard, departed Kobe at 1030 on the 11th. As the ship rolled and pitched in heavy seas, the attack force commander remarked that Kezia was one of the worst storms he had ever encountered. This was also the opinion of Captain Cameron Briggs, U.S. Navy, then fighting it out with Kezia in an effort to reach Sasebo with the carrier Boxer and its 96 planes plus 14 extra aircraft taken aboard at Pearl Harbor. It was necessary to launch these spares and land them on Okinawa before he could finally make port on the 12th and prepare to mount out two days later for Incheon. On 12 September, the Mount McKinley overtook the AKAs and APAs. They had reversed course, apparently, on the assumption that they could not get around the typhoon. If Doyle had not ordered the heaving vessels to circle about and follow the flagship through the storm, their chances for meeting the 15 September deadline at Inchon would have vanished like the wind-whipped spray. There was no joy in troop compartments as the transports plowed through mountains of water but Doyle was winning his gamble that the typhoon would slowly veer off to the north, and starting the transport group a day early proved to be a sound decision. Thanks to the Admiral's judgment and resolution, every ship weathered the storm and approached Point, Arkansas on schedule. After rounding Kyushu on 12 September, the Mount McKinley docked at Sasebo that evening to pick up General MacArthur with his party of GHQ and 10 Corps officers. The proper ship for this purpose was Admiral Struble's flagship, the USS Rochester. But Sinkfee preferred the Mount McKinley, despite the fact that an AGC was designed for the staffs of an attack force and landing force and had no accommodations suited to a party including seven general officers. The ship was warped in by two tugs and Sinkfee came aboard. General Shepard had previously been assigned by General MacArthur to his staff for temporary duty as amphibious adviser and personal liaison officer to the First Marine Division. The Marine general was accompanied by Colonel V. H. Krulak, G-3 of FMF PAC, and his personal aide, Major J. B. Ord. In less than an hour, the Mount McKinley was back on the high seas, straining through the darkness toward Korea. All elements of the attack force completed the last leg of the voyage without incident on 14 September. Headquarters of the 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines, rode the only cripple, an LST partially incapacitated by an engine breakdown. Fortunately, an ocean-going tug was on hand to tow the ailing vessel at 8 knots, sufficient speed to get her to the objective area on time. The Yellow Sea was quiet as the columns of ships closed on Point California and Korea's coastline. Nothing was taken for granted, and the approach was carefully screened to the very end by Admiral Andrew's fast blockade and covering force. End of Chapter 5 Part 1 Read by Aaron Bennett